Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jennifer Peratt, an educator, award-winning author, speaker, and the founder and president of Craft Ed. She is a leading voice in the mainstream wave of project-based learning implementation. I'm so excited to have you on the show because you are all over talking about project-based learning, which is something I am really passionate about and so excited to, to discuss in the context of our current situation. So how about we start and just tell us a little bit about your journey in education? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so I started out as a classroom teacher. I taught grades five through 10. Um, I was a founding staff member at one of the high-tech high schools. So my background was in project-based learning, and I just, I loved everything about it. I had some incredible experiences with colleagues and students and designing, and after um, 10 years, I, you know, was kind of curious about what it looked like outside of my bubble at High Tech High, so (laughs) I took a position working for a national company where I was supporting teachers with project-based learning in all different contexts, right? Like small school, big school, private school, urban, rural, just, I got to see so many flavors of it um, and realized that it was so much more complicated, you know, implementation of it was so much more complicated than when I had existed in that little bubble. And that kind of became my new passion, just like, how do we take something that I know is good for kids and that people are interested in and how do we make it more accessible for teachers? So that was kind of where my journey of working with teachers began. Um, and so I did that for three and a half years before I started my own company. So Crafted, I launched in January of 2016 and I've continued that work of supporting teachers with PBL implementation, but the difference has now really been about um, just working, partnering, I guess, like being able to have this ongoing relationship with schools and coming back and getting to see student exhibitions and Mm -hmm. just really being able to hold teachers hand throughout the process, because that was what I felt like they really needed. Like they needed a partner in it with them. Um, so, so I've been really fortunate and that I've just developed wonderful relationships with communities over the course of the past few years. Um, and, and yeah, so that, that's kind of just, that's been the arc, I guess, the spark notes of it. Um, but I, I feel really fortunate I get to do what I love and, and help teachers kind of fall in love with PBL also throughout the process of that. And so which high tech high were you at? So I've been to the one in San Diego. It's the same network of schools, right? Yeah. So okay. you, did you go to the one in Point Loma? Yes. Yeah. So I opened up the one, the North County campus up in San Marcos. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah. So it's the same model. Um, back in, gosh, what year was that? I don't know. It's too many years ago to count, but <laughs> we opened up um, a campus down in South County and then went up in North County. And so it started out first just as the high school, ninth grade, and it grew every year. And then we opened up the middle and then the elementary. Um, and so that kind of became these two satellites of K-12 in South County and, and North County. Yeah. And I know the, the PBL, I know their approach there and it's just so cross-curricular and so immersive. It's phenomenal to be able to see what they're doing. So I can imagine going and then trying to support such a wide range of schools that aren't necessarily grounded in project-based learning, but trying to help them incorporate project-based learning would be really 
uh, interesting vantage point. Like what were some of the big challenges you saw teachers wrestling with who are trying to implement project-based learning? Well, you know, it's funny because we, we started out every year we'd have, you know, kind of like a, we call it all village day and Larry Rosenstock, the founder would come talk to us. And, you know, it's kind of like the big rah-rah for the year. Mm -hmm. And it kind of became this running joke because he would say some things the same every single year, which in hindsight, I get because we're always absorbing new faculty that kind of needed to be onboarded. Right. But one of the things that he would always repeat was just this, this story about the schedule and that the (laughs) schedule doesn't make itself. The teachers make the schedule. And, and so he would talk about how important scheduling time for learning for the adults was. And I never got it because I didn't know any other way. I just assumed everybody collaborated for an hour before school started, (laughs) right? Like I thought that was a thing. And then not only did we collaborate every morning for an hour, but then you had a common planning time every day for an hour with your partner teachers. And then we had PD after school. So I just thought that's like what everyone did. So when I went into schools and they were like, oh, we have an hour of common planning time. I was like, oh, sweet. Like a day? They're like, no, like a year. <laughs> like, They're what? like, we have one day where we learn in August. <laughs> yes. And I was like, wait, what? I mean, my mind, I could not, I, I just, I, my mind was blown. I couldn't mm-hmm. get my mind around that one. I was like, what do you mean? So that to me was the biggest challenge was teachers just didn't have time to collaborate. And and it wasn't their fault. Like it was the this, this schedule's fault, really. You know, right. like they're it just like that structure wasn't built in whenever, you know, whoever it was that decided what the schedule looked like, that that wasn't part of, of the equation. And so without that common planning time, it felt almost impossible to ask teachers to design projects because people are always shocked by this. But for me, right, someone who has their PhD in this and has done this for a really long time, it takes me at least 20 hours to design a project. At oh, least. yeah. It's right? such a time-consuming endeavor, for sure. It's huge. And so if you don't give teachers that time, it's like, well, they're not they're not going to spend the, their weekend doing this. I mean, you know, so it's like that, that common pl- planning time just to me was for sure the biggest hurdle that I, I couldn't, that was a hard one for me to get past. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting. And you're talking about this through your lens of project-based learning, but I see the same thing as somebody working with teachers trying, you know, schools want teachers to shift practice. And that is just accelerated, obviously, because of COVID and wanting them to transition to blended learning or like figure out how to teach these concurrent classrooms where they have kids in class and kids joining online. And I'm thinking, do you have a professional learning infrastructure built on your campus to support this? Where, like you're saying, teachers are given constant opportunities to learn. They get to collaborate with their peers so they can learn from kind of what's working with other people. And the answer most often is no, that professional learning is still very much this event. And then teachers are left to kind of sort it out and figure out how to implement it in their classrooms on their own time, which is so problematic if we want teachers to continue learning and modeling that lifelong learning and taking risks and experimenting with new strategies, whatever they are. It's just, I don't know how how they're supposed to do it with all the other things they're juggling. Yeah. I mean, it's a time thing, but also then it just becomes this piecemeal thing too, right? Mm -hmm. Where you see kind of what I call the mavericks where there are the teachers who will take their whole weekend or their whole summer to figure out how to do it. But then it's like one teacher on a staff and they can only be a maverick by themselves for so long. Like that's not sustainable. 
And then the other piece of that too is, and Katie Martin does a great job of explaining this, the difference between learning or developing and training. I mean, it's like there's a huge difference. And right (laughs) now that's been the biggest problem I've seen since COVID is there might be PD time, but it isn't development, it's training. It's how do you use this platform? How do you use this program? Rather than talking about how are we shifting our pedagogy? How are we shifting our practice? Because that's what we need right now. I mean, yes, we need these technical tools, but we also need to be talking about the bigger question on how do we engage kids right now? And how do we get back to relevant and hands-on kind of learning and developing 21st century learners? Because man, it is lost right now in most places. Yeah. And I feel like some of these approaches could also be utilized to just free teachers a little bit. You know, I think part of the burnout, the disillusionment, the frustration, the exhaustion I'm seeing is teachers are trying to take the strategies they've used for a long time to some degree of success and trying to make them work in this moment because there's so much going on and they don't necessarily have the time or the support to really shift practice and it's just not working. So I I love the idea of project-based learning in this context. And actually when I was teaching at the high school where I worked for 15 years, I was in a co-teaching project-based program that was very much informed by some of the observations I made at High Tech High, which was was so fun to have you on. So I should have started with this, and I know you get asked this all the time, but for the folks listening, how do you define project-based learning? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's just so many different definitions, and and there's not any right or wrong one. This is just kind of where I've landed based off of my own, you know, experiences. So for me, I'm, I'm very much about less is more. So mm-hmm. my definition really is just kind of boiled down to does it, is it grounded in standards? That's a big piece. Um, especially because that's a pretty big misconception about project-based learning that it's like this super organic thing and, and it can be, that's fine. You know, right? like if you think messy, sexy, that works for me, that totally stressed me out. So I need structure. So for me, it's got to be grounded in standards. Um, it has to embed best practices, a formative assessment. That's another big misconception about PBL is that assessment doesn't, you know, doesn't happen or you do it at the very end or it looks very different when in fact best practices of teaching are best practices of teaching and that should show up in PBL. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other piece too is that it needs to be engaging and relevant to what's going on in the life of, of your students. So that is going to differ based off of different kiddos, based off of different communities. But it, you know, for me, when I'm looking at the standards for when I'm designing a project, my first question is, why, why should my kids care about this? Like, what does this mean to them? Or how can I help them to see that it is something to them? Um, so it's all about just creating relevant real world experiences. And then tied to that too is the fourth component and final component for me is that it should embed 21st century skills. Um, and, and that's part of, you know, real world learning, but kiddos need to be prepared for for whatever path they go on when they leave us, you know, whether it be college or career. And PBL is just such a wonderful vehicle for teaching things like collaboration and communication. Mm -hmm. So it's just being really intentional about how you scaffold those skills, just like you do content and assess those as well. Um, Those are kind of, for me, the big four pieces. And I know a lot of organizations have like really wonderful definitions and descriptions that are, are much more robust than that. But And the work that I do, I found that when we can kind of honor where teachers are, which is 
that component of standards. Most teachers do have to teach two standards mm-hmm. um, and honor where the kids are, like our end user, right? Like they need to be more engaged in what they're doing. I, for me, the definition is pretty simplified um, for, for that reason. It just kind of meets people where they're at and also upholds the fidelity of, of a quality model of project-based learning. Well, and I think is if you ground it in standards and the project blossoms from standards teachers already have to teach, then the project doesn't feel like some kind of creative add-on or, oh, this would be fun. It is very much grounded in what teachers feel they need to be doing with kids. And I, I totally agree with your less is more sentiment. Like that's a mantra I wish everybody would kind of adopt right now in this moment or really kind of give yourselves a break in terms of trying to cover the volume of content or information that maybe there's been this pressure to do in the past and really drill into what's most important in terms of content knowledge and skills and really dive deep with kids in this moment. And I have to imagine that that relevance piece, there's so much going on in the backgrounds of their lives right now that could make for really fascinating kind of fodder for project-based learning in this moment. Oh, I mean, honestly, right now the world is our curriculum. I mean, it's 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 kind of a mess, you know. Like this yep. is a tough time, and I know that it's it's easy for teachers to shy away from the mess right now because just their day in and day out is working like a schedule mess, you know. But it's um, there's just there's the world is so ripe right now for kids to be diving into solutions too, mm-hmm. you know. That we don't have a lot of solutions to the problems that are going on, so. It's, it is a really unique time. And, you know, I, I think almost every teacher that I ever started working with told me that they didn't have time for PBL <laughs> because it, it, it's a big ask, but you're right when we can kind of make it so that it's this thing for teachers to see like, oh, well, this is what I have to be teaching anyway. Like, right. it's just a way to frame what you're teaching that is the big shift rather than it's in addition to what you're teaching. Now, don't get me wrong, pretty much every time we brainstorm a project, no matter what grade I'm working with or what school, we will come up with way more than they actually need to teach. (laughs) Normally we have to like scale it way back. But that's the cool thing about PBL is it's, it's, it's such a creative process and there is so much that you can do that it helps teachers to see like, wow, there, there really are some really great connections for kids. We could do so much more than we thought we could do. Um, so usually the process is actually scaling back once we kind of get flowing on the brainstorming process, but. Right. And do you find that it's hard for teachers on some level to, let go and hand the learning over to kids because part of project-based learning is really they're they're driving the process with the work they're doing and the teacher isn't controlling every single part of the process. And I feel like that sometimes can be hard for educators. Yeah, I mean, it is. And one of the things that I usually coach teachers toward is knowing the difference between voice and choice. So students can have a voice in what they're learning and that can be within the guardrails that you establish for them too. Like if that makes you feel better to kind of have some form to it, um, you know, like, so say you have a driving question for a project, students can establish their own driving questions within that one about what they want to research that helps them answer that driving question. Mm-hmm. Or we talk about maybe they have some choice and how they show you what they know. And that doesn't mean that they can just sh- create whatever product they want to. It means that maybe you give them an option of three to five products and they can pick one of those products. Because 
what seems to really feel overwhelming for teachers is like, oh, so I, they can do whatever they want. How do I prepare for that? <laughs> right. And it's like, well, not only it's impossible to prepare for that for one, but two, it's also impossible to come up with, say, 30 rubrics. Like, that's crazy town. So let's think of three to five final products that would showcase the same content and skills. Mm -hmm. So then you can use that same rubric regardless of which final product they pick. So I, I think a lot of it is just kind of talking teachers through the process of, yes, the students are, are driving their learning in different ways throughout the project, but you still have some structure to where they're going and how they get there. It just might look a little bit different within that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so I know you're kind of striving to kind of stay in the trenches with teachers and really offer practical resources and frameworks. And we're in this really unique moment. And so I was hearing you talk about PBL Lite, and I'd love for you to speak about how you see PBL really working in this moment, because I think I can imagine teachers who loved project-based learning before being thrown entirely online with kids or being in these hybrids kind of schedules with kids. Um, how do you see this working for those who kind of maybe let PBL go when they were scrambling to navigate these new learning landscapes, but really see the value in it? Yeah. And to be totally transparent, this was really hard for me to swallow the first couple months of COVID because it was like, man, I don't think I, I could realistically ask someone to do PBL right now. Like it just, it didn't feel like a fair ask. Mm -hmm. And people would approach me and say like, well, can't we just do a watered down version? And I would cringe. I'd be like, no, oh, we, yeah. no I, we, we don't water down anything. Like, no, no, no. So it actually started coming more from my friends who are parents that were just like, oh my gosh, there has to be some way to take the stuff we've watched you do on Instagram with schools and, and get that to our kids somehow. And I was like, I just... I don't know. So come like, I want to say the end of May, I finally was like, okay, this COVID thing's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that school's going to look normal next year. So I, we can't just call it quit. So what would it look like to continue to meet people where they're at? And so I came up with this new framework called PBL Lite. Um, and the idea was that we would hold with, you know, keep the fidelity of the model but also think about what it might mean to move that model over to a fully virtual or hybrid format, since that was my guess, best guess at what most schools would be doing in the fall. So what I came up with was, um, you know, similarly to how I described PBL initially in our conversation, it, it needs to still be tied to standards. However, the big difference with PBL Lite is maybe it doesn't need to be tied to as many standards as when you would normally design a project. Again, so taking less, less is more. So fewer standards, which then equates to a shorter amount of time. So typically when we're designing a project, they normally run four to six weeks in, in a, you know, a traditional setting. But in an online setting or a hybrid setting, let's just scale it back to two weeks. Mm -hmm. Like that to me feels like a fair place that you can hold student interest and kind of keep them moving toward the same goal or the same product. Right. So definitely adjusting the time um, because you're also not covering as many standards. It wouldn't make sense to say spend four weeks on something if it's a fewer amount of standards. That's not a good use of anyone's time. So um, the other big shift was, and, and this actually is true in a traditional classroom too, but everybody always thinks that everything has to be collaborative in a project. <laughs> And yes, that's like a lovely 21st century skill that's important, but 
it not everything if it doesn't make sense for students to be collaborating like if they're not getting anything out of it then i always tell teachers then don't do it like it does the task actually necessitate collaboration and if it doesn't then then don't because teachers get so frustrated like oh they're not working productively in a group or whatever and it's like well they don't really need to be in a group right i mean so the big shift for pbl light is getting people to think about okay yes we want students to continue collaborating but the project doesn't have to be collaborative. Maybe it's more about students giving each other feedback and really mm -hmm. scaffolding that process. And that's the extent of collaboration. Or maybe it's leaning on their peers to brainstorm ideas or innovate concepts that they then build out on their own. Because that collaboration piece, man, I ran the PBL chat, I guess it was last month now. That was the number one gripe from teachers. They're like, I, this collaboration <laughs> thing is killing me. How, how do we do this better? Mm -hmm. And it's, it is hard. And I'm not saying throwing the towel on it, but I am saying, again, less is more. Like if we're trying to design a project and there's all these other things going on, let's just scale it back a little bit so it feels more manageable. Well, and I love, it almost sounds to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they're almost like a distinction between co-creating something as a group versus collaborating around the process where you could engage kids in conversation about different steps in the process and how that's going. And then like you're saying, bringing in artifacts of things in progress or, you know, things taking shape to get feedback from other members of the, the community, the class community, as opposed to that, the tricky piece. And I see this in my own daughter as well, trying to navigate group projects, not necessarily project-based learning, but group projects asynchronously with students who, you know, aren't necessarily leaning into that process. Whereas if it was her job to really drive her own project, but she had the, that connectivity to a group to debrief, brainstorm, chat, get feedback, I could see the group really being useful in that mode. It doesn't mean we, we won't still have to support them with that skill building because quite frankly, I know there's so much frustration, but this is all really new for kids. So throwing them in a breakout room and expecting them to thrive, there's so much skill building and scaffolding and norm creating and agreements and revisiting agreements that kind of has to happen for kids to get good at that. Yeah, and I, that's a great distinction you just made. You nailed it, um, the, the difference between co-creating and collaborating. And, and to be honest, as an adult, I have a hard time with that. I just, mm -hmm. I, I'm on my son's um, little league baseball board and it was my, I just got on. So it was my first meeting and it was virtual and they were establishing jobs for the next year. And there was like five that I was like, okay, I could probably do these. <laughs> and, and every, and I was kind of waiting for them to say who would be interested. And they never did. And people who were really comfortable who had been on the board were like, I'll take that one. I'll do that one. So I was like fumbling all over myself trying to figure <laughs> out how to unmove. I was like, maybe I should unmute. Maybe I should put my hand up. Maybe I should use a chat feature. I was like panicked. And before I knew it, I got stuck with a couple jobs that I didn't really want because <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to like insert myself. And I was just thinking like, man, adults don't know how to do this stuff. So you throw like a third grader in yeah. one of these calls. No kidding. They don't know how to do it. And everyone's ripping out their hair. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a classic example of Right, like those skills, we have to scaffold and ask students to reflect upon them and give them feedback, just like we would the content, because they don't innately have those skill sets. Um, so no, I, yeah, no. And <laughs> your comment, your comment is, I'm like laughing inside because I'm literally just about to publish a blog about preparing for, facilitating, and wrapping up synchronous online discussions. And one of the points I made is exactly what you're describing your experience to be, which is there are kids who might 
might be on the fence about participating, like they want to, they know it's important part of their grade and to be part of this community, but it may just be the fear of like, how do I enter this conversation? Is it a virtual hand raise and an unmute? Do I have to wait for my teacher? Should I ask in the chat window? And I think their teachers are juggling so many different plates and balls in the air and all that, that sometimes we miss those basic steps of like, hey, if you want to volunteer for a job or you want to chime into this discussion, this is how this is going to work. So they feel comfortable doing that. So it is so funny how we as adults are struggling to kind of find our footing in this landscape and kids are having the exact same experience, but poor things are also dealing with all of that social anxiety and those elements that, you know, maybe those are part of the adult's experience as well, but I don't know if we feel it to the degree that like teens and tweens do. No, it's, it's such an awkward thing. I mean, even just like my son, you know, I was trying to explain to him, he he was done with the call. So he hung up, but the class was not done with the call. I was like, honey, you can't just walk. I was like, would you walk away from your teacher? And he's like, no, but it's fine. She didn't even notice. And I'm like, no, I'm sure she does. And maybe she didn't, but you know, I was like trying to explain to them just like basic etiquette. Right. It it is so abstract, especially to the littles what's happening. And it feels so one dimensional, like this one way exchange. It does not feel collaborative by nature, like you're talking to a screen, you know, and so you miss all those really important social cues that that they just don't have. And so it's, it is just a really awkward thing. I, I, you know, and, and, and I will say the couple conferences I've presented at who had, like a chat moderator for me, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, that made my like, felt so much more at ease and so much more comfortable because it really was too much for me to juggle to have, you know, this chat going with 200 people and be trying to run the tech. It's like what every teacher deals with every single day. I was like this, you kind of need, you need a second, you need a teammate in it. Mm -hmm. You need your co-teacher online with you. (laughs) You totally do. It's crazy. Yeah. So in this transition and this, you know, you've gone through and kind of reimagined PBL for this moment with PBL Lite. Like, what do you think is gained by a PBL Lite approach? And are you concerned about anything that's lost in that approach when compared to kind of the traditional project-based learning that you do with teachers? Yeah, I mean, for sure the rigor. And that's something that I I hold really near and dear to my heart um, is being sure that kids are really learning what they're expected to learn and being able to give them the feedback that they need. That's that I know is a really big challenge right now is just getting kids feedback. Yep. Um, and so, and I've encouraged through PBL light for teachers to really think about how they can share the assessment load, you know, Mm -hmm. and by assessment, I don't mean like necessarily academic assessment, but just getting kids feedback so that they can continue to reflect and learn and grow. Um, so I do, I do worry about that, but I don't think that's unique to PBL. I think that's what we're dealing with, with virtual and hybrid learning. Um, is we're just not able to, one, cover the amount of content we normally would. Um, And tied to that is we're not able to give feedback to kids like we know that they need for it to lead to assessment for learning rather than just assessment of learning. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I I don't think that's unique to PBL. Oh, no, it's not. Because even right now, I'm doing so much work with teachers who are, you know, utilizing blended learning models around feedback. And like, how do you make feedback focused, timely, actionable for students? And I do think 
even before this moment, I just saw feedback as being an aspect of the teacher job that was often neglected, not because teachers don't value it, because there's just not enough hours in the day if if they're taking that feedback home to do on their evenings and weekends. Like my message has always been, how do we pull those feedback loops into the classroom, physical, virtual, combination of both? I don't care. How do we make that part of our work with kids and really embrace that role as a coach, giving students feedback so that as they move through a process, when they get to a product that's stronger, but our focus isn't on that product. So how, what advice do you give teachers in this moment about how to make feedback kind of consistent and timely as they're using kind of a PBL or PBL light, uh, you know, with their students? Well, I've been encouraging them to really think about scaffolding the skill for students to provide each other meaningful feedback. I mean, most kids will tell you they hate doing peer feedback because they <laughs> they don't get good feedback, right? Oh, and totally. Teachers will tell you, I don't bother because they give terrible feedback. <laughs> it's this <laughs> terrible, vicious cycle. Right. Um, but one of the things that I love that I learned at High Tech High was we worked really closely with Ron Berger and we, you know, we started out by reading an ethic of excellence. It was kind of like the holy grail there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had training from, from Ron and um, there was this emphasis around critique and which is different than just simple feedback. It's much more in depth, but it obviously requires those really simple skills of being able to give feedback and look at models and analyze models. And I think that um, I, I wrote a blog on this somewhat recently ago about, you know, we, we can take that process virtually, like it, it can still transfer, it might look a little bit different, but we can transfer it. Mm-hmm. But really teaching kids how to develop the skills to give kind, specific and, you know, meaningful feedback. Um, I think that that's a big piece that it, it takes some work on the front end. But once once students have those skills, man, you're golden for like the rest of the school year. So that's been a big piece that I've been encouraging teachers to think about is really scaffolding those skills for peer feedback so that they can provide each other feedback. But then also I've been kind of in some recent projects I've been writing, I've been including questions for the students to actually elicit feedback from experts mm-hmm. and reframing how we, you know, what we think about experts. Like it doesn't have to be a scientist in a lab. An expert can be an end user. It could be your next door neighbor. Right. You know, it could be a grandparent who has a story, you know, if you're doing narrative writing, like there's, there's so many ways that we can rethink who an expert is um, to give kids feedback. And obviously we're not going to ask them to use a rubric. Like there are, you know, some guiding questions that I, I encourage the students to, to ask these people when they're giving feedback. But I also think it builds students agency mm-hmm. by just kind of getting comfortable with saying, Hey, can I share my work with you? And would you give me feedback? And then the most important thing that I remind teachers is then you have to tell the kids to do something with the feedback. Act on it. <laughs> yes. Like that's the big piece. Cause that's the other thing they'll say is, well, I gave, you know, I spent all this time. I gave them feedback and they didn't do anything with it. It's like, well, you got to you gotta hold them accountable for it. So then there has to be this final step of students looking back at the feedback, generating a goal, applying it, and, and going at it with another draft. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that kind of process to me feels like something that could be really helpful for teachers so that, that they're not carrying that load of the whole feedback loop on their own because it's, it just doesn't feel practical right now. 
No, I, I don't think the way that most folks approach feedback is sustainable, quite frankly. It's just so arduous and time consuming. And one of the things that's been fascinating to me, because I love your point about how do we get other eyes on these students' work, other perspectives and suggestions in as part of that feedback loop. But I also want teachers to just give themselves permission to give feedback on one thing, right? I think so often when I'm coaching teachers, the instinct is I have to cover whatever this is in comments and suggestions and questions. And that can be really overwhelming for the learner and hard to act on. So if we were just giving this bite-sized focus feedback that then kids could, like you're saying, craft a goal, make edits, revisions, improvements, I think that feels more sustainable from a teacher perspective, but also from the student perspective, because I think we sometimes lose sight of how overwhelming the amount of feedback kids get in any given moment can be. And I, I mean, I cringe thinking of my first six years in the classroom <laughs> when it looked like my pen just threw up all over everybody's paper. No matter what color you did it in either, because oh. I tried not to use red and it didn't matter. <laughs> oh my, you know what? I totally used red and I know that that is so <laughs> frowned upon now, but like, yeah, it just, it was, it was way too much for them. Yeah, it's funny when you when you use that word overwhelming, I thought you were going to say for the teachers, which it is, but you're right, it's equally as overwhelming for the kids too, especially for a student who's already struggling. You know, it's like, yeah. where do I even start with this? It's like, right. forget it. Yeah, I guess I'm a terrible writer. Ms. <laughs> right. Tucker killed this paper. Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, I should have just focused on one thing, helped them kind of develop some confidence around some of these skills. But early on, I just, I don't know whether that was just informed by my own experience as a student or reinforced in my teacher credential program. But I, yeah, it's so definitely one of my cringeworthy memories of early teaching. Um, so one of the other things that I think is really interesting about using PBL or PBL Lite in this moment is I'm really concerned that as students are spending more time learning online, whether they're entirely online or they're on a hybrid schedule or maybe they're learning at home three days a week and two days a week in a classroom, is that the offline learning, that break from a screen is perhaps being neglected, right? I know a lot of teachers aren't sure how to build in experiential, tactile, offline learning in this very online learning kind of scenario. So how do you think students or teachers can prioritize that offline learning when using PBL Lite so that students have that opportunity to take a break from the screen and engage in some of that more tactile, experiential learning when they're at home? Yeah, I started experimenting with this in the spring because it, it, it's interesting. I think what happened was everybody was so concerned about how much screen time the kids have, which, which was concerning in the mm -hmm. spring that I've seen a lot kind of swing way back the other way. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There is a lot of offline learning that's happening right now. Um, and, you know, I, so I started experimenting with field work. Hmm. with with my own two kids before I started writing um, for a couple companies that had hired me to do some projects for them. I was like, okay, let, let's just see how this goes. <laughs> and so we started doing things like getting on our bikes and using the neighborhood, um, going, you know, I took them on like a driving field trip. We just kind of, I should say field work, not field trip, um, because what we were really essentially doing was using our surroundings as a place to capture feedback or capture uh, data for the project. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was going out and, you know, taking photos, maybe it was observing behavior, maybe it was 
um, water samples. Like, so just so kind of getting them to, again, see the real world connection to what they were learning about that did exist on the screen. Um, and then asking them to spend some time just observing and mm-hmm. taking notice of things. Cause that to me felt like something that was lacking, um, with all the virtual learning. Mm-hmm. So the, the, I think the I think field work is also something that overwhelms teachers when we're in a, in a traditional setting. So to me, this feels like a really, what I've called golden opportunity, like a really exciting thing to rethink. Like all that red tape that we used to have about, you know, permission slips <laughs> yeah. and drivers. It's like, well, they're at home, you know, regardless of where they live, you could ask them to go sit out on their front porch and look at the weather, you know, do descriptive writing, think about their five senses. Like there's a lot you can do outside, so I, I've been playing around um, with kind of with field work as a way to to make that offline learning feel meaningful right. and also connected to the real world. But I will say, my my mom, she's still a classroom teacher. She teaches um, sixth grade math, mm-hmm. and God bless her. She she doesn't do PBL, but she has been making these like home science kits for the kids. And they're just a Ziploc bag with like really basic materials. Uh-huh. And she, she just sixth grade. So she's making a lot of these because she's got a lot of kiddos on her caseload. And she takes them to the school and the kids all come and pick them up. And inside each one is just like a interactive, like one is like how to make rock candy. And there's like a little tiny lesson that they read and then the instructions and then whatever they would need to make the rock candy. And she's, it's so cool to see because it's offline learning, which I think is great. And in her district, they've decided not to do science and social studies this year. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so she's like, you know, I, I'm not allowed to really teach it, but she's like, I know they need to learn it. And she's like, the, the kids who I haven't gotten to show up for class this year are showing up to tell me about the experiment that they did on their oh, own. I and I just that. think it's so cool. Yeah. And it's not PBL, but it is hands-on and it is offline and it's not anything crazy. It obviously took her some time to make these little kits, but they're just in a Ziploc bag and, you know, they just come by school and they pick them up. And so I don't think it has to be anything crazy. It just, you know, I think it's just thinking about what would, what did kids enjoy about school that they're missing right now? And how can you recreate it for them, even if it is at home and even if they are just doing it on their own? Yeah. And I think a big hurdle for a lot of teachers or a big fear is that equity and access, right? Everybody's home environment is different. We can't necessarily make assumptions about what kids have access to, but like what your mom is doing, I have to drive to my own kids' elementary school at least once every two or three weeks for a materials pickup, which is just like what you're describing. So the science teacher, you know, one time I picked up what looked like one little strip of wire and like some popsicle sticks and some other random items in there. And the idea was we want to do some mini kind of tactile, scientific tinkering to learn, building to learn, experiments, etc. And so trying to make that available for kids, which I love because then teachers don't have to worry, oh, do you have access to popsicle sticks? Do you, are you going to have a little strip of wire? Are you going to have this thing over here to make whatever the rock candy? Um, and so I, I think that school who aren't thinking in that direction, you know, if we're looking at this long term, I think that's a great idea. And kudos to your mom for, I can't even imagine the amount of time she's spending putting those little kits together on her own or all the teachers who are doing those kinds of things. But I think it's so important in this moment for kids to be engaging in that kind of learning. Yeah. And, and just using their hands yeah. and, and just getting excited again. I mean, and that to me is, and, and I, I'm, I'm biased, but I feel like science and social studies for me always drives the project design because it's such an easy entry point for yep. kids. 
Um, so I, yeah, so I think there are ways to think about the offline learning. Uh, it just obviously is going to look different than when they were in the classroom. I know what it's not. I know it's not worksheets. Mm, right. Um, and that I know is the easiest thing to provide. Um, so I get it. I get why teachers are doing that, but, um, th- you know, these kids, they're just, they're dying to be engaged right now. Yeah, no, whether it's a worksheet or it's an endless like a parade of Google Forms, it's, I do know there is some of this stuff that we are doing in still kind of survival mode. But yeah, I am seeing the impact of that on especially my younger child, my son, just feeling like, oh, look at, I got 25 assignments dumped on me on Monday. And I'm like, don't worry, buddy, you have all week. Like we'll put together a schedule so you're not too overwhelmed. But it is a series of watch this video, fill out this form or do the sheet, you know, of problems. And it's not in, it's not particularly engaging, you know, when that's the kind of the, the whole, the whole enchilada in terms of like what they're facing at home. So I love the idea of incorporating projects. Have you had any teachers share examples or like success stories of using PBL Lite in this moment that you want to share? Um, yeah, you know, I, I did get really fun feedback from, um, from a project that I had designed that teachers did over the summer, actually, which was kind of interesting. It it definitely (laughs) had an academic foundation, Mm -hmm. but the idea was for kids to have fun with it. Um, And it was based off of a project I had designed for my son, who, um, you know, at the time was doing 100% virtual learning in May. And so he was just checking out and I was like, okay, well, you know, what can I do to kind of supplementing and keep him engaged in, in what he's doing with school? So I designed this project for him. He's really into hiking and he wanted to plan a backpack trip, like where he would actually go out and backpack overnight with my husband. So, oh, wow. yeah. So we did this whole like nature science. There's a lot of math. There's a lot of informational reading and writing, and he planned out the whole trip. And so I took kind of that, it was, it, it was a very robust project, but I took it down to a PBL light format where it was two weeks and it was K through eight. So we modified three versions of it for, for this, um, this series of teachers who ran the project. And the, the little kindergartners we had do, um, they like had to build a fort in their living room and they had to do a lot of, you know, imagining and descriptive writing, but they also ended up like making their own trail mix. And it, it was the cutest <laughs> thing ever to see these little kindergartners in their kitchen trying to, you know, they could only use ingredients that were in their cupboard. So they were so creative, the things they came up with and <laughs> little pictures of them in their little hideouts, you know, and, and, you know, under their couch or under their table or in a corner, um, and it just, they were learning, but they were having fun with it. And I, they, I was shocked all the way up to the eighth graders. I thought I made it optional. I was like, you know, if you guys don't want to do the camp out, you know, don't worry about it. And the teachers were like, they all wanted to do it. So they all, <laughs> same thing, you know, like they, they did all the components of the project and they had for their little exhibition at the end, they, they did a share out of what they had learned and the, you know, trip that they had planned from their little campouts that they had done in their backyard. It was, it was so cute. So it was, yeah, it was inspiring to see that they didn't even realize how much they were learning because they were having fun with it and they were kind of all in it together. And it was this, this group that hadn't worked together before. And by the end that the fact that they felt comfortable enough to like show people their bedroom, you know, where they were Mm -hmm. camped out, I was like, well, I mean, it speaks to, it's possible to make a community of learners in two weeks. Wow. And I love, I mean, 
I love learning. I'm an enormous dork. Like I get so excited learning new things. And like, that's what we want kids to experience, right? I'm having so much fun. I'm not even necessarily aware of how much I'm learning by going through all of these different steps and doing all of these different kind of individual activities that are coming together to form this really meaningful whole, which I, I think is such exciting, uh, an exciting way to think about planning learning right now, you know? Yeah, and I, I really do think probably the number one factor in that is just modeling that as an adult, you know, right. like I, I gear, I don't know your kids, but I'm sure your kids, that's contagious. You saying that you love learning, like they probably, you know, like that's what they grew up with. They probably feel maybe not about everything they're learning, but <laughs> I'm sure that passion is in them. And, and I think yeah. that matters, you know, when a teacher really geeks out on something with the kids. Oh yeah kind of contagious. You're like, okay, I'll listen to this crazy lady. Like there's something here. I don't, I don't know if I get it yet, but okay. Yeah. So I think, and again, I think we've all been so overwhelmed and just inundated with just stuff, you know, since COVID hit that it's hard to find that passion again, but I think just modeling it is if you're, if you're not feeling like you're ready to move to, you know, something crazy like PBL or even PBL light, like just a starting point is just get excited about what you're teaching again and figure out a way to share that passion with your kids. Cause I feel like that would take care of the worksheet thing. Oh, a hundred percent. And what you're saying is, you know, supported by all the literature. And I think really an area of interest for me, like my doctoral work was on teacher engagement and blended learning environments. And there is a clear connection between teacher engagement and student engagement. So figuring out how to keep our fires lit as an educator in terms of our excitement and enthusiasm to be able to light that fire in kids and keep them engaged is critical. And I think sometimes, you know, we we talk about student engagement and, you know, educators are really frustrated, like, oh, kids aren't showing up, they're not engaged, they're not motivated. And that has to be made worse now when so many educators are feeling quite frankly, exhausted and a little disengaged and frustrated and unappreciated in this moment, you know, and I don't know, it, it really, wor- I worry about it long term. And I, and I think you're right, finding these places where we can kind of tap into our own passion and share that with students is as important now as it has ever been, despite all the challenges I know teachers are facing. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's getting back to the joy of it. You know, mm-hmm. I, my, my best friend, Kate teaches, she also teaches sixth grade and, um, she loves to teach about early man. And man, when I taught sixth grade, that was like my least favorite thing to teach. I was like, <laughs> good, good on you, Kate, but that is so dry to me. And she's like, yeah, so here's what I did. And she texted me a screenshot of her. And I was like, I was kind of embarrassed for her. It was like a nervous laugh as I saw it. But she showed up for her Zoom and she was dressed like an archaeologist. And she has like the magnifying glass. And nice. she's, she had gotten these skulls on loan from our, one of our local museums. And she just like went all in. And I was like, man, you, I mean, which sounds cute for like a kindergartner or a first grader, but I'm like, these are middle school kids. Like they probably loved it. Like, oh, yeah. I, how do you not laugh at that? Like, <laughs> even if you're not paying attention quite yet to what she's talking about, I guarantee you it, it was more than if they had just been assigned, read this chapter and answer these questions. Oh, a hundred percent. 
I don't know. It's like, I, I just, and she, it was joyful to her. You know, she was like, I just, I, I needed to have fun. And it's one of my favorite things to teach in class. And I'm so sad that they didn't get to see the skulls and like, well, they, I mean, they got to see them like firsthand. <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. I worked with a third grade teacher and he is just fabulous. And he was using the playlist model and he put together this whole playlist that was really grounded in research and writing, but he was going to let kids kind of choose the animal that they focused on for this playlist uh, research writing kind of thing that they were doing. And it was a rigorous playlist. And he started with this video where I'm not kidding. He's like lying on the floor. His whole face is surrounded by stuffed animals because he has young (laughs) kids of his own. And he did this whole like almost crocodile hunter voice, like introing (laughs) them to this playlist project that they were going to be doing. And I was just like, Oh my God, I was cracking up and the kids were so into it. And it just got them so excited about this playlist, which was going to be academically rigorous and challenging. But it was like, from that point on, they were in it. They were like, okay, we want to be animal hunters. Like, let's figure this out. It was the cutest thing. So that that energy, that excitement for teaching is so uh, contagious and so important, I think, for kids. And for adults, you yeah, know, it's like, just, it's like, this is what we got into teaching. Like, we have to get back to that of like, what is it that we really love about it? Because this isn't great. Like, no one's really happy <laughs> with what it is right now. So it's like, how do we get back to the parts of it that we do love? Mm-hmm. And I think just, just enjoying it um, is, is a big piece for us to model for them. Yeah. So I always let my guests kind of have the last word on balance. And so I'm curious, like, do you have any advice for folks about how to create more balance in their lives or maybe even how you see this approach, uh, creating more balance in this moment, like any lessons you've learned? It's a, it's your, the floor is yours. Oh gosh. I mean, if I had this figured out, I would write a book on it. I mean, I <laughs> like the silver bullet right here to surviving COVID. I, you know, everyone will tell you like, oh, boundaries. Yeah, those aren't good right now. I, so my big thing, actually, I, I do feel like I figured out a win recently that I'm excited to share. Um, well, so one of them, and I've always done this, but I, I my daily calendar is scheduled by the hour mm-hmm. and I schedule in that kind of component that we're talking about balance. So for me, that includes working out every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but as of recently, I have started... Um, what I call mom hours where I punch in and punch out <laughs> like eight o'clock I'm done. And it's like, if you want me to tuck you in, if you, you know, if that's what you want, you want to read a story together, it's got to happen before eight. If, if you want to stay up and watch the end of the world series, that's on you. I'm going, I'm out. <laughs> so that has been helpful. And then I, the same thing in the morning. So my workout is in the morning. I work out at seven until, and then eight. And so I, after eight, I'm, I'm happy to be a mom and help you out. But like between those hours, I'm off the clock. So that has been really helpful for me boundary rise. But then the other thing is I've been, and this sounds like so simple and ridiculous, but it's been a a game changer for me. I Thursday nights have committed to hanging out with a friend again. And I just feel like I've lost so much of that Mm -hmm. kind of collegiality and just friendship because of COVID because we're so isolated. Yeah. Um, and it helps now that like things are starting to open up a little bit more. So that's safer to do that. That's obviously helped. But even if it's going for a walk together outside, just making myself once a week, cause that is the first thing to go for me is mm-hmm. if 
the kids need to get to a practice or I'm, you know, working on a blog late at night, whatever it is. I'm like, oh, my friends can wait. And so I've really tried to reprioritize my friendships. And so it's been nice. It's been nice to have like some girl time again in my life. So that's been helpful, I think, for the balancing act. Yeah. Yeah. We're still pretty, things are really pretty tense in California still. So I feel like, you know, I've did a walk with a girlfriend where, you know, we're wearing masks and we're walking apart, but there's still that challenge of even connecting with people. And I had like a weekly Zoom call with a bunch of girlfriends that was kind of fun, but I'm the same way when I get really busy. It's the first thing that kind of goes, which is not great. And so I could see how just prioritizing that time to be a friend and relax and debrief with somebody, how that could just be so grounding and a nice way to kind of find some balance in this crazy moment where we're putting so much energy into things like work, which is happening at home and kids who may be learning at home. <laughs> just There's just, it all bleeds together. Yes. Like it just starts to feel like you kind of lose yourself in all of it. And so it's just, it's been nice for me to kind of restake myself as an independent human again, <laughs> like separate of where all these boundaries have just kind of blurred. Um, so it's, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I feel I'm starting to feel more like my own person again, which has been nice. Oh, that is nice. Well, this has been so fun. I appreciate you joining me for this chat. I was so excited to just get some more ideas out there for educators in this moment to just kind of reimagine what this learning and teaching could look like. Cause I have no idea what the winter is going to bring in terms of folks who are currently seeing students being kind of pushed back online. And I'd love to see them embracing projects as a way to really increase student engagement during this time when kids are learning in all these different physical locations. Gosh, me too. I mean, I, I'm I'm hopeful. Everyone asks, you know, where do you think things are headed? I'm like, ah, I don't know, <laughs> but I do have hopes. And you know, my hope is, I, I don't think anyone feels like they figured it out up to this point. So, and maybe some people do. I don't know, but I, I think the more that we keep trying, it it means that PBL is one of those things we can try, right? Like if exactly. if, you, if you haven't arrived yet. Like, give it a try. Like, it can't hurt. It's just one more thing that you could, you know, consider as a different direction or a different framework. So I'm hopeful that we'll see more of it ahead. And so where can people find more? I know you have a website, you've written books, like, where would you direct them if they're like, okay, I'm curious, I want to know more, I want to try this. Yeah, I, my book, Keep It Real with PBL, um, I, I think even though it's written for a traditional setting, is is a really kind of user-friendly model, the way that it's written. But also, if um, teachers purchase it now, you can have access to my new ebook, which is specifically uh, PBL Lite, taking the, the model of the book and modifying it to virtual and hybrid environments. So I, I think that's a really great starting point. Um, social media, I will say to our, your question about balance, I have I've taken a little bit of a break from social media. Nice. <laughs> um, so you can find me on there and I'll be back on there at some point. But for right now, I've taken a little bit of a break. Um, so my website um, and email too. Um, I'm, I'm always, I, I love when I get emails from people that, you know, hear me on a show or a conference and want to connect. It's always a nice way to to just kind of build the relationship. So um, Jenny at Crafted Curriculum and my website is craftedcurriculum.com. And I'll make sure all of that is in the show notes. So thanks so much, Jenny. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was fun. I 
appreciate Dr. Pratt's suggestions in this episode around thinking about project-based learning for the current moment. It is so critical that we as educators find ways to engage kids in dynamic, interesting, relevant learning experiences, even if that learning is happening at home. I know that in my work with teachers, I hear their frustration, their concern about a lack of student engagement and lack of motivation. These are big issues right now, particularly for those kids who are learning from home. And so how do we rethink our approach to introducing key concepts or helping them understand specific skills by using projects? And my thinking around this is that projects might be one of the best ways to hook learners at this moment and really get them excited to lean into the learning. So I appreciate all of the concrete suggestions about how we might get that done in this episode. Our first teacher tip today comes from Jennifer Wolf, who found me on Twitter and says, I set alarms on my phone to remind me to practice self-care and exercise, to stop for lunch, and to stop at the end of the day. Boundaries are essential, but hard to remember when you're caught in the current of distance learning. I could not agree more, Jennifer. There are so many times when I feel like I blink and it's 4 p.m. and I've barely moved from my chair. So I think that's a great reminder. The second tip comes from Glenn Rogers, who says, I've subscribed to at yoga with Adrian. Her videos are great for a novice like me, helping me find balance in more ways than one. I responded to Glenn just saying, I also have watched my fair share of yoga with Adrian videos on YouTube. And it is so nice to just carve out time to stretch and practice yoga as a way to settle the mind um, and take care of the body. So great tips. If you have a tip for creating and maintaining balance, I would love to share it on a future episode of The Balance. You can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker and use the hashtag The Balance. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners with different skill levels and with different language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. As teachers navigate an online learning landscape, StudySync is hard at work designing resources to ease this transition. You can check out their remote learning resources, blogs, webinars, both live and on demand at studysync.com.